Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast, and, you know, everywhere else in, the, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Are you ready for season three of Discography? Yeah! We're jumping into the deep end of The Who. Not only will we go through every Studio Who album in great detail, but their story is often told between albums, so we'll be touching on non-album singles, the solo works of Keith Moon, John Entwistle, Roger Daltrey, and Pete Townsend, and some of the events that would make a record begin as a concept and land as something that would universally change the world. Discography returns to Consequence Podcast Network in January of 2019. Until then, be lucky. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, hey, take a second before we get started here to hit the subscribe button. We put out interviews every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday over at Consequence of Sound. And would love to keep you up to date. That means you can subscribe wherever you're listening from. Uh, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, YouTube, really anywhere you're getting this from, there is a subscribe button. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today, my guest is Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells. This is one of my all-time favorite bands. And I feel really honored to get to take a big old time machine trip with Tommy James back to 1969. That's when the Shondells released not only the Crimson and Clover record, but also Cellophane Symphony. That's the year they turned down Woodstock and so much more happening in that big year right there. So Tommy James and I are going to talk about everything that happened in 1969 with a ton of really fun stories 
And then we're going to jump to the present because there's a lot happening with Tommy James and the Shondells. There's a new album on the way. It's the first one in a decade. He's going to tell us about the upcoming single. And there's going to be a movie made about his career. This is based on the book that came out a few years ago called Me, the Mob, and the Music. So he's going to give us the updates on the movie, on the new album, and again on Crimson and Clover and Cellophane Symphony Stories. It's Kyle Meredith with Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells. Kyle, this is Tommy James. Well, I, I, I kind of want to start, uh, you know, in, in the 50-year anniversary realm, and we'll work our way forward, if that's all right with sure. you. But um, 1969, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's the big year, finally getting its its big 5-0. And, uh, and had a, a couple records come out that year. In fact, it was right at the beginning where Crimson and Clover was released, a landmark album that uh, is one of my favorite of all times that still sounds well, thank you. Yeah, just amazing today as it always has. Crimson and Clover was probably, uh, next to our first record, the most important record we ever made. And the reason was that it created so many new doors for us to walk through. First of all, it was the first record that we produced totally by ourselves with no interference from anybody else. And it was also um, a, a drastic style change for us. We had just been on, in 68, we had been on the presidential campaign with Hubert Humphrey. And um, we had left for the campaign in August of, of 68 and got back after the election in November. And in those 90 days or so, the whole industry turned upside down. When we left, uh, it was all singles. The biggest acts on the radio were uh, the Rascals and uh, Gary Puckett and Credence and us. And oh, just, to, you know, just I'm leaving a lot of people out, but all singles. When we got back 90 days later, it was all albums. It was Blood, Sweat and Tears, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills and Nash. Neil Young, you can just go right down the list, Joe Cocker, it was just all albums, and uh, suddenly the industry went from singles to albums in just that period of time, and so we were very lucky that we had been working on Crimson and Clover, uh, you know, uh, the writing of it, and we went in the studio and uh, banged it out like in five hours, and it um, was attached, of course, to the Crimson and Clover album, and Roulette had never really sold albums before, our label. They had been great with singles, and they sold, you know, their share of albums, but they really weren't known like Atlantic or CBS for being uh, album-selling labels, and Crimson and Clover really uh, started them down a new road, and we suddenly were making platinum albums, and uh, so everything changed with Crimson and Clover. I I do want to take the opportunity, uh, this moment, to ask about that Herbert Humphrey tour, because what, what, I mean, what was it like touring a presidential campaign during one of the most notoriously political times in America? Well, for one thing, uh, it, it was it was you know like being dead center in the middle of of your generation for one for, for one thing for us. But the, the the you know we we had all kinds of different reactions from the fans. Some were really outraged that we would be involved with uh, anything to do with the government in the middle of the Vietnam War, and others thought it was really great that maybe we could actually help. I was 21 years old at the time, and uh, Hubert Humphrey was uh, so gracious to us. He was really a great a great human being, just a good guy, and uh, we could have done a lot worse than Hubert, uh, Hubert Humphrey. But uh, 
what it really boils down to is that it was the first time that a Rock Act had ever gotten involved with a presidential candidate. That had never happened before. That's crazy. And so it was uh, an amazing moment in history, an amazing time for us. And now, of course, we see that happening all the time. I mean, just with just about every election. That's right. You know, you'll be teaming ended up there. doing the liner notes, by the way, to the Crimson and Clover album. Right, right. I, I, I'll skip ahead, actually, a little bit to see, is that how Sweet Cherry Wine sort of works in the way it does? Was because of your involvement there? Well, um, uh, actually, Sweet Cherry Wine was a song that that came out right after uh, Crimson and Clover. It was it was the follow up record, and um, it uh, you know was that that batch of, of of songs that we did. It didn't make the Crimson and Clover album. It was on the next album, Cellophane Symphony. But it, it was an important record for us, too. It was uh, very different. It was three-quarter time, and it was, um, you know, just a, a different type of song. It was very, uh, had, you know, I, be, I was becoming a Christian during that period of time, and we just didn't think, and nothing was politically incorrect. We just wrote songs as we saw it. And of course, Sweet Cherry Wine and Crystal Blue Persuasion were two records that I wrote during that period of time that uh, uh, were very important to me. Yeah. That magic summer of 69. Well, it's interesting, you know, how, how that works, because, you know, on one side, you do have the uh, the Christian themes that go along with that song. But as well as when you when you have a line like "Let's just get along," I mean that's a sentiment that never goes away, and especially in 1969, it, you know, it, it seemed to be that uh, you know playing two sides uh, of that coin. The and country was really, yeah, the country was really being ripped apart at the time. I think uh, I don't know how you'd compare it today to today, but the country was very definitely being torn in half, and um, so a lot of people had a lot of things to say back then. And here you have a song that, you know, even today, uh, both, it seems like both conservatives and liberals really uh, put a big flag in a song like that, which is... That's that's very true. That's very true. You, we, you know, we also did a, uh, what I call a gospel version of Sweet Cherry Wine that was on uh, the Hold the Fire album from a few years back, and I was very proud of that. Sweet Cherry Wine is one of those songs that just kind of has lasted for a long time. So backing up to, to Crimson then, you know, it, it, uh, the other part of the story is... The this sort of debuts a more psychedelic sound for you all, which, you know, that was definitely one of the genres of the time, but why that one specifically for for you well, all? It was, uh, it was a, a, a huge style change. You know, we had come off a of Moni Moni and going <laughs> in a very different direction. But, you know, back then we were allowed to do that, and I'm, I'm very thankful. Today I don't think you'd, you'd be allowed to because you kind of get pigeonholed, and that's kind of where you have to stay. Back then we were just sort of all over the place with our music. We went from, you know, garage band to uh, pop to, uh, I don't know if you want to call it psychedelic, but it was certainly more, it allowed us to be, to sell albums and to be uh, more of a, uh, a progressive rock uh, genre. And uh, and uh, we were, we sort of had fans on both sides of the fence. But it's interesting, you know, and that gave us the second half of our career. It was, I mean, there's so many great songs in that. And, you know, and I'll hit on that, uh, that big title track here in a minute, but I, I do want to point out. I think I'm alive over the years has become one of my definite favorites, and that one. Thank you. You know, we we did a remake of that on our new album. Uh, on the on the album that's coming up. 
That's correct. Tell me about that. (laughs) (laughs) We have gotten so many requests over the years. And you know, the funny part about I'm Alive is it was really filler. It wasn't really intended to be. It was just something that went. It was the last song on the B-side of the Crimson and Clover album. Mm -hmm. It was never really intended to be a single of any kind. It was just kind of something we threw together. And um, over the years, it has been used in, oh, 20 different commercials, and it's been a hit in England, and then Tom Jones had it out a couple of years ago, and uh, it's been just all over the place. So uh, Sony, who represents us on television with television and movies, uh, asked if I would do a remake of I'm Alive, and I did it on this album, and I uh, hope you dig it. Yeah, I, I can't wait to hear that. And, and I'm only really just learning uh, about the new album and everything, too. I mean, is this all going to be re-recordings? Are there going to be you know, original? Well, no, it's, it's both. It's, it's uh, our first studio album, new studio album in 10 years. And uh, it does have songs. Uh, there's a song the, 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 in our movie, Me, the Mob, and the Music, uh, which we'll talk about, I guess, later. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was going to be the closing credits. Uh, this song plays as the closing credits of the movie and it's a remake of I Think We're Alone Now it's uh, slow acoustic very dreamy sounding totally different from the original record back in 67 so we may end up releasing it as a single I'm not sure wouldn't that be a hoot (laughs) to release the same song Uh, but uh, we did a couple of remakes on the album and uh, the rest is new music but uh, uh, we're we just got finished with it. It'll be released in April, and uh, we're real happy with it. Yeah, well, I cannot wait to hear that part right there. That's a that's a nice surprise in this whole thing right here. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, and, and, and I do want to ask about that title track before I completely leave Crimson and Clover, too, because I, I was thinking, you know, for a song that has so much just pure magic in it, actual magic lies in that song. I um, Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I come from a, a radio standpoint here, and I thought, you know, looking back at the history on that, the one thing I didn't know is most of the time radio stations will ask you for a shorter version of a song. You had the opposite <laughs> experience. Yes, that's quite true. We we had to make a long version from the short version <laughs> rather than the other way around and uh it was challenging you know we had to take you know tape loops and back then we didn't have pro tools or anything to work with we had to do it with with tape and so we'd make tape copies and tape copies and we'd throw in we threw in uh, uh you know steel guitar and uh just created uh, uh the long version from the single and um that's what ended up being on the album it gets played a lot i have been amazed at how many people have covered crimson and clover it's been you know everyone from dolly parton to prince just before he died did crimson and clover prince Mm -hmm. actually had a a number one record with it digitally and uh dolly parton and i did a duet. well it wasn't exactly a duet i sang background played guitar on it and uh she did her half down in nashville i did my half in new york and we got together at radio city and she's just a real great gal but on our radio show, actually, this week, I have a new show on Sirius XM every Sunday. We we played several versions of Crimson and Clover. And um, we did Joan Jett's version. We did the original version. We did Dolly's version. Uh, so uh, it's just been an amazing 50 years with that song, I must say. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm just 
very grateful for uh, having a record like that that uh, people uh, are still playing 50 years later. I mean, that's, you know, in the 60s, that would have been the equivalent of us playing something from 1910. Right. <laughs> Rudy <laughs> Valley with a megaphone. You know? I, Dylan was a big fan of that song, too, right? Like I well, yeah. And I, I, you know, all I can say is that it's, 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 it's wonderful to have a, a record. And if you have one record like that in your career, that really is, uh, is wonderful. We've been so lucky. We had 23 gold singles with Roulette. You know, so it's, uh, but Crimson and Clover certainly was uh, one of the top two or three that uh, stand out. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful to the fans and the good Lord for, for the kind of longevity that song has had. Now you say, you know, that many top singles right there. And, and so this brings me to the point where I, I'm going to gripe not at you, but to the people of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> because well, you know, I kind of like being the underdog, though. I think I've gotten more mileage out of people saying, you know, you ought to be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I, I think once once it actually happens, it's going to be a downer. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, everybody has uh, everybody has their I can't believe they're not in the Hall of Fame band. And for me, it's Tommy James and the Shondells. And I've been I've well, been waving that flag for a long time. Yeah. Well, you know, when it's I'm I like to be very magnanimous about it and when it's our turn, we'll go. <laughs> you know what I'd like it to happen though really when the movie comes out. So when does the movie come out? We'll we'll we'll, we'll jump so we're to that now. We're talking about probably another 18 months to 2 years. Yeah. And so give uh, tell us about the movie. This is uh, based sure. on your book, right? Yes, Me the Mob and the Music that came out several years ago. Uh, our story of, of roulette. It's an autobiography with about two-thirds of the book devoted to this tumultuous relationship we had with roulette records and scary relationship because we couldn't talk about it at the time, but the fact is that uh, unbeknownst to us when we signed, roulette, in addition to being a, a functioning record company, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. We couldn't talk about it, and, uh, uh, you know, we tried to pretend we didn't see stuff that was going on right. but i don't think we would have had that kind of success on any other label because if we had gone with one of the corporate labels that we could have gone with you know we would have had so much competition and we would have probably been turned to especially starting out with a record like hanky panky which was a fluke we would have been turned over to an in-house a and r guy and that's probably the last time anybody would have ever we'd have been lucky to be a one-hit wonder right you know, right. and at Roulette, they actually needed us. And so I really learned my craft and learned all about the music business at Roulette in the midst of this very sinister and dark story going on behind us that uh, we couldn't say anything about until we wrote the book. So anyway, that's what the movie is about. And uh, the screenplay has been written by Matthew Stone. The producer of the movie is Barbara Defina, who produced Goodfellas and uh, Casino and Hugo a couple of years ago with Martin Scorsese and The Color of Money and just a whole slew of great, great films. And we're just very flattered and honored that she's going to do the movie. And um, she's, you know, see, her idea is that it isn't it isn't a necessarily a, it's a music movie. It's it's a drama with music in the movie. And that's it's a, it's a very different vantage point than 
than the other way where it's where it's what you call a jukebox musical you know and then after after the film they want to do uh do a musical a broadway oh, wow. musical and and so this is the next couple of years are going to be exciting so you know i'm very very happy that <laughs> we're still able to do all this of course it's great timing i mean every few years it seems we get some great music movies that come out and and with the humongous success of of the Queen one that just arrived, the Queen and I know movie, El, right. Elton has his on the way. I mean, it seems like this couldn't have been better times uh, with, with all That's of that. Correct. We're very happy with all this. Yeah, the screenplay is written. Uh, I guess you haven't made it to the casting I love it yet. Too. Yes, I'm getting a hell of an education because uh, uh, you know the, the screenplay writer has to do with dialogue what we did with just telling the story. Right. So you've got to create the dialogue and create the scenes. Because uh, that's what a movie is, just a, about 30 different scenes back-to-back that tell the story. And uh, so it's a, it's a real artwork. Uh, uh, it's, it's real art putting these screenplays together. Yeah, That's really exciting. It's really exciting. Stuff to look forward I'm to. I'm having fun with it. Yeah. yeah. Since we're doing the jumping back and forth here, I want to hit one more thing back on our uh, 1969 time travel. Because this was sure. also the era... That, uh, you know, you, there were so many quick turnarounds. You did one album, but you did two albums in a year. You know, so many artists did that. And, and I don't want to overlook Cellophane Symphony that came out that year as well, because this kind of further is where you started with Crimson and Clover, right? Right. We, we actually, during the year of 1969, we had five gold singles and two platinum albums. The Crimson and Clover album and the uh, second volume of Greatest Hits album called The Best Of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 69 was a huge year for us, but the the pace was unbelievable because we began producing our own records. And so, you know, we were constantly in the studio uh, or writing. It was just, it was, by the end of 1969, we were just blazed. <laughs> I mean, you were already uh, working on it. You're, you're, you're already working on traveling by the end of 1969. Like That's right. That's, that's crazy. Right. It, it's a nutty pace. And, um, you know, it's a pace that'll put you in a hospital if you're not there. <laughs> so we figured out. Well, so, you know, Cellophane Symphony does tend to get overlooked because of Crimson and Clover. I mean, what what really comes to mind to you for that one? Sure. Well, that's an interesting story because uh, right after the Crimson and Clover album, we, we started Cellophane Symphony. But our studio, Allegro in New York, was shut down for updating. They were updating to 24 tracks. And so, you know, half the studio had to be torn apart. They had to put in a new board. It was just an immense job. And so we then went over to another studio called Broadway Sound. And I walked in. And by the way, Broadway Sound was owned by Whitey Ford from the New York Yankees. (laughs) Is that wild? It's on Broadway and 54th Street. And I walked in and I see this gigantic contraption with the old RCA plugs. It looked like a switchboard from the 1920s, you know, hello, please, <laughs> with, the, with the wires and, and a big black monster it was, took up a whole wall. And I said, what the hell is that? He said, a synthesizer. A synthesizer? What's that? Um, it was the first Moog synthesizer in New York. Wow. And this was like uh, May of 69. And I walked in and we started playing on the thing and had a little keyboard. It was really pretty simple by by today's standards. It, you know, it was huge with this little tiny keyboard, but it did all kinds of things. You know, it could be 
horns or it could be wind or it could be drums. So we we just immediately knew this was the future. And so cellophane symphony, a lot of cellophane symphony was made around the synthesizer. Uh, so uh, anyway, that's that's how it went. And so the song cellophane, you know, cellophane symphony just meaning plastic music, <laughs> you know, and that's what it was. And if you wanted to hear a funny conversation, Whitey Ford took me out to lunch. And if you wanted to hear a, a, a hysterical conversation, you should have heard me trying to talk baseball and, and Whitey Ford trying to talk rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> that conversation should have been recorded for yeah. posterity because that was that was, <laughs> was really, really funny. Two fish anyway, out of water, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, that's what Cellophane Symphony came from. And so that's why the album is, is uh, uh, well, it, it, it ended up back in the 80s. It suddenly was revived again and started selling records again. But anyway, you're, you're quite right, though, that it did get overlooked to, to a large degree because of the other things that were happening in 69. Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff on there. 69 was so great. In New York, if you were in New York, it was great. The Mets won the World Series. Uh, the Knicks won the championship basketball. The the Rangers won hockey. Jets won the Super Bowl. I mean, 69. And then you had Woodstock, and you had everything else, well, which we missed, by the way. Well, right. So you all you all didn't go to Woodstock. I guess they asked you, maybe we you said invited. no? We were invited. Uh, Artie Kornfeld, who was one mm -hmm. of the... A friend of mine and a producer, a good producer, was one of the uh, co-founders of Woodstock mm -hmm. and uh, came up. Uh, I was in Hawaii at the time and, um, you know, we were performing in Honolulu and I get a call from my secretary who says, listen, uh, Artie Kornfeld is up and says, you know, I'd like you come back. Could you play this gig this week? Um, uh, it's, it's a big gig up at a pig farm in upstate New York. I said, what did you say? <laughs> Did you say farm. a pig farm? And a, right. I, she said, "Yeah, it's supposed to be a big one and big gig." And I said, "Well, I'll tell you what. If we're not there, start without us." And I <laughs> laughed and I hung up the phone. Oh. And of course, by Friday, we knew we messed up pretty bad when they, when they closed down the freeway. You got you kind of got another chance, though. I mean, it's going to be the 50th anniversary. They did say they're going to be inviting some folks back. To you know, yeah, would you do well, it? We'll see. I don't know about that. We'll see what happens. I did make it to Woodstock a few years ago up at the big, you know, amphitheater that's the outdoor amphitheater that's up there now, Bethel Arena, but they call it. But uh, it was, uh, I told you, know, I, we, it was like 45 years after the fact. I said, yeah, traffic was murder. <laughs> <laughs> we, we finally made it. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. That's perfect right there. I, I, I think I'm going to try to make the journey this time around. I, uh, I don't blame you. Yeah, I, um, I missed the last two. Well, thank goodness I missed the last one in 99, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, well, you know something? Um, whoever thought rock and roll would be more... Uh, would would last all this time. Yeah. I don't think anybody thought it would. You're talking about something that basically started in about 1955. I don't know if they would recognize rock and roll today as being rock and roll. Right. But, um, uh, but they call it rock and roll, and it's, you know, pop music, and it's just... Uh, you know, who would have thought that, that rock would last this long? We have, by the way, a new single coming out called So Beautiful. It's the first single from the album, which the album which is called Alive, by the way. Perfect. As opposed to, we were going to say dead, but we didn't figure it was a, <laughs> a, a good visual. <laughs> so, you know, uh, this is this is 
going to be a fun year. Well, I, I hope so, and I'm looking forward to the new music. And uh, and, and Tommy, I thank you for for taking the big old journey. This well, has been a big a dream of immediately. mine. And I want to thank you also for all your help with letting me get in all the plugs. Yeah, anytime, anytime. And hopefully we'll talk to you again once the record's out and and, and once the movie's out, too. Thank you so much. All right. It's a pleasure. Take care and uh, and stay warm. Take care now. Bye-bye. Nice talking to you. Bye. Bye. Oh, my. What a big, big, huge thanks to Tommy James for going on that quest with me right there. Crimson and Clover, Cellophane Symphony, and a new album and a movie on the way. Lots to keep in tune with right there. Uh, hey, if you haven't already, please do hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening from right now, whether that's on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts, Acast, Podchaser, really wherever you're listening from right now. After that, head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern, where you can also find some bonus episodes of this series over there. Head to Consequence of Sound for all your music and film news. You can find me at Twitter, at Kyle Meredith, Facebook, slash Kyle Meredith. That does it for another one. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.